coming up on Rich and Famous Universe. Ruins, wrecks, and random patterns. Evidence of ancient civilizations or precursors to some new threat. Thargoid has re-entered the popular vocabulary ever since the first crash site was discovered. Well, of course it did. Everyone heard those stories growing up. Would you ignore evidence of an impending disaster? Evidence? I'd hate to be tried in any court you ran. It's certainly a compelling find for archaeologists, but assuming an alien race is on our galactic doorstep is quite a stretch. The new site has ignited even more controversy. And how could it not? It doesn't look anything like the crash sites. We better hope we can discover its secrets. It may be the key to protecting us. It is far too early to say whether that site has any merit beyond scientific curiosity. No reputable scientist is making any claims about the future benefits of that site, if any. Speculation about weapons, star maps, and even the existence of aliens is premature and frankly unprofessional. Rumors of actual artifacts from both sites is speaking interest from amateur archaeologists everywhere. <laughs> and the scammers that follow them. Mark my words, there'll be exoplastic replicas being sold at 1000% markup before the end of the week. You can't argue that we're at least looking at the start of great advancements based on ancient technology, unknown to us humans. I can argue that, vehemently. More than 90% of the galaxy is unknown. These could be ancient Earth probes whose microfauna went through mega-evolution. Or an early colony mission that landed, advanced, and then failed spectacularly. Until someone identifies a being or material that can't be traced back to human civilization, any other theories are just fairy tales. For more on the crash site controversies, join me and xenoarchaeologist Colin Colin Ranger on the next Rich and Famous Universe. Citizen civs, captains, and commanders, you've tuned to the guard frequency, and as all good pilots know, when you're out in the deep black, you want to keep one ear on the guard. This is episode 145 of the Best Damn Space Sim podcast ever, and is recorded on Friday, November 11th, and made available for download Tuesday, November 15th, over at guardfrequency.com. I'm Jeff. I'm Ken Shadow. And I'm Ostron. Henry unfortunately couldn't make this week's recording, but we found someone drowning their sorrows in the audio booth and decided to put him to work. Hi, everyone. So what do we have in store this week, Ostron? In this week's Squawk Box, we're not saying it's aliens. Well, you know the rest. Next, we check out what news from your favorite space sims has hit the flight deck as we cover tidbits from the CIG Monthly Report, as well as the fleshed-out atmosphere system and details on the Drake Buccaneer, the Colonia expansion and Migrations Pass in Elite Dangerous, and a brief note about the upcoming game mode in Descent Underground. After that, we're debating cataclysms in games before finally tuning into the feedback loop and letting you join in on the conversation. And that takes care of the housekeeping, so let's get on to the show and see what's coming through the Squawk Box. Hey, you boys need a carrier around here? Uh, everything's under control. Switch to normal. 
Crypto, crypto, crypto. This is Jeff saying welcome to the Squawk Box, everyone. Usually, if you're watching, reading, or listening to a claim that has a sentiment or even an actual phrase, we're not saying it's aliens, but it's aliens, there are two possibilities. You're either involved in some form of science fiction entertainment, or you're interacting with a publication from a group with dubious standards for scientific rigor and evidence. Now, there's a third possibility. You could be reading a scientific journal. Hermano F. Bora and Eric Trottier, both from Laval University in Quebec, said in the following in the journal publications of the Astronomical Society of the Pacific, we find the detected signals have exactly the shape of an ETI, extraterrestrial intelligence, signal predicted in the previous publication and therefore in agreement with this hypothesis. The fact that they are only found in a very small fraction of stars within a narrow spectral range centered near the spectral type of the sun is also in agreement with the ETI hypothesis. The signals that they are talking about are strange, in quotes, and only originating from 234 stars out of the 2.5 million. In space, that's a very small area. Everyone is quick to admit that more evidence is needed. Fortunately for the authors, one of the groups that agrees that they might be onto something is Breakthrough Listen, a $100 million organization backed by relatively mundane figures such as Stephen Hawking and Mark Zuckerberg. They will be conducting independent verifications to confirm the first team's hypothesis. So as far as I could figure out, this is the first time that signals like this have been agreed to be possibly extraterrestrial intelligence by like more than one legitimate scientific figure. So we took a bunch of space noise and and took an algorithm and, and broke down a bunch of the space noise and decided, hmm, this particular set of space noises sounds like it could be backed by ETI. Interesting. Pretty much. Uh, apparently the key indicators were that it's very narrow. It's, it's only originating from a small point in space, relatively speaking. So they're saying the same signal is coming from 234 stars? I think they're saying that the area is like 234 stars. So if you took a, a star map and you drew a box around 234 stars in a group, that would be where they're... Okay, so there could be an astral anomaly between us and this cluster yep. that is potentially causing this too. That's what I was thinking too. Though I, I do believe in the existence of ETI, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not one of those people that thinks that we're the only smart people in the universe. Well, not that we're smart, but intel no, not that we're intelligent either. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Aware. Aware. Yes. I am not one of those people that think that we're the only aware um, species in the universe. The reason they aren't dismissing this as just a spatial anomaly seems to be that the spectral range of the signal, like they said, is too narrow. Like all the other spatial anomalies they know of have signals that are like they cover a lot of area on the spectral imaging range. This one is apparently very narrow. So it couldn't the, the thought that it may be a very new and unique spatial anomaly didn't cross their minds? Well, no, I mean, they're not saying definitively that it's from ETI. They're just saying this signal fits the properties we would expect if a signal were originating with extraterrestrial intelligence. Everybody is saying we need more evidence to confirm this one way or the other. Cool. Red Cena heard something you might think 
might be interesting to others listening on the spectrum, send an email to squawk at guardfrequency.com. But for now, let's see what news has hit the flight deck. 3175 Port Bay, hands on approach, checkers green, call the vault. Don't get technical with me. Our Star Citizen crowdfunding update for November 11th, 2016. $130 million. They only got 379000 last week. 1.655 million registered accounts, up about 4,800. 1.114 million ships in the UAE fleet, up about 3,200. The monthly studio report for October was no surprise. Focused mostly on what everyone did for the CitizenCon. We feel that the subject has been covered to death and apparently even the report writers agree. The report was only 5,000 words long, or less than half of its usual length. It did have a lot more integrated videos than normal, and mostly pulled from the CitizenCon demos. If you want to review a particular segment of the presentation without scanning through the full-length video, this might be a good thing for you. While a lot of the information was rehashed, there were a few new items. First, there was a brief mention that Pete McKay was working on Trade Slayer. This is apparently a model that describes how an item goes from mined materials, refined materials, manufactured product, to an item on a store shelf. Good news for those interested in trade and mining. The IT group from Austin also revealed what the guts of the PCs at CitizenCon were. If anyone wants to try and copy the build, it'll set you back about $2,375 without a case or monitor, based on the prices over at Newegg. Apart from work on Squadron 42, the UK studio has been working a lot on the Crusader landing zone, including developing some mission content related to it. Work on Crusader was also a major focus of Behavior, who produced some screenshots of the decor, along with more shots of Hurston and Microtech. From ATV, we learned that the development of the Persistent Universe is once again producing fun bugs. Players reported through the issue council that Arena Commander occasionally would provide defecting Vandal and wingmen that turned traitor. Some ships in the PU would spawn with a single warning. Lethal force fields preventing entry and window tinting packages offered on the Drake Herald in fact turns the windows totally opaque. They did say info running was a risky job. Mark Haben is working on items 2.0 and demoed some of the features related to the atmosphere. The current airlocks in the game are fake, they aren't discrete door objects, and the atmosphere isn't modeled realistically. It's either there or it's not. The new system makes airlocks actual doors, meaning they can be hacked, opened, closed, and destroyed, and the atmosphere is an actual thing. If a room with atmosphere is opened to vacuum, it will start to leak atmosphere, an effect that will propagate to other rooms as appropriate. They also gave us some more details on the Drake Buccaneer. Current changes and features on the docket for the ship include the wings will be reduced in size slightly to emphasize its speedy profile, the gimbaled belly gun will be usable even when the ship is landed, think Millennium Falcon in the hangar on Hoth, the nose is being modified to allow for a fold-out ladder, and the ship, when it's done, will have a total of 28 thrusters on it. That thruster count seems abnormally high. Well, it's supposed to be super, super nimble. I think the whole point of it is to avoid fire rather than taking it, and they made a point of highlighting that it it can outmaneuver uh, the Hornet in order to not take damage, because once it gets hit, then it'll be... It's the metaphorical glass cannon that the Cutlass was supposed to be. 
Now, one point on the Buccaneer that wasn't in this weekly report, but I saw mentioned on another channel, was that so the Buccaneer doesn't have an ejection seat, just like all Drake ships. But uh, Matt Sherman was on uh, WTF Osiris's Twitch stream, and I was complaining to him about this. <laughs> and he mentioned that there will be a lot of other options in game to negate the need for an ejection seat, like uh, things that prevent interdiction or things that let you get away faster and etc. So if you ever feel like you need to eject, you might be able to get out of combat with these other additives. And those are slots you could potentially use on a Drake Buccaneer rather than have that slot taken up by a um, ejection seat like it is in the Hornet. So are like aftermarket ejection seats for Drake ships not going to be a thing then? That I have no idea. I mean, I, I actually, I, you know, I love the way the, the Buccaneer looks. I would hope that, you know, ejection seat would be an option, but apparently it's definitely not there when you get it. The new room system was really cool. Um, if anybody doesn't seen that video, I highly recommend you go watch the video. It's all still super, super gray boxed or white boxed or whatever you call that, right? <laughs> Where it's just literally a door on a grid. But they showed like how air moves from room to room, if a door is opened or closed, and how if multiple rooms are hooked together and you open one door, then all of the air flows out and all of the rooms that are connected go down to zero. And then if you close the door, they start filling back up based on where you know the source of the air is. You can easily imagine fire propagating that way or fire being starved just like you would in FTL. Or for instance, you could, you can, you could imagine a similar system where uh, again, a fire breaks out in a system in a, in a, in a room and consumes the oxygen in the room, right? And so it would hurt players who aren't wearing their spacesuits, even though they're not necessarily in, in the fire, <laughs> they're just out of oxygen now. So there's a lot of emergent gameplay things that they showed going along with the, uh, or they kind of hypothesized about with the the, the room system and the um, in the air. And they said that a lot of things will, will go along with this. There's all sorts of control schemas and maintenance and power and stuff that will also be flowing into this whole room thing. Well, I'm also hoping that the absence of air means that we won't be seeing smoke rising from damaged pieces. And one of the things that always bothered me early on when you were out on the on Crusader and you damaged your wing or something on the ship and you were walking around it looking at it, there would be a small fire in the wing section and some of the smoke would be rising and uh, up and it's like wait a second we're in space we're in an oxygen free environment there shouldn't be any smoke there shouldn't be any fire it totally like this isn't mercy could, this is like this is funny you could have a gas leak or something like that but you're right it would go down rather than up well yeah the fire is debatable but the smoke is is more of a point i although to your point with gas i wonder if this would also allow for gaseous weapons or security systems where you could have either incapacitating or lethal gas weapons that could be pumped throughout the ship's atmosphere that's a good point yep they would have to track that separately from the rest of the system you could starve an area of oxygen right if you wanted to that would that seems like it would be in in the system you know without necessarily venting it you could just pull the oxygen out right yeah or shut the oxygen off and make people unconscious and then pump the oxygen back in again right yeah they would you would in theory they could slowly consume the oxygen while they're in the room even if you just turn off the source you're right that would be interesting too with the same same system um, it would be interesting also to know what, what else they track in the room system eventually. 
like I was saying, they were talking about things like power and control, and you could theoretically board a craft and then start shutting down the system without making it all the way to the bridge. You're like, oh, I know the junction box is over here. If we hit that junction box, they won't be able to control the port thrusters anymore. <laughs> you know, whatever, right? And if you if you knew the ship well. And that, that gives a lot of, uh, again, emergent gameplay that goes along with these Lego blocks that Sega's building. I did like the fact on another topic, I, I like the fact that they're working on that Trade Slayer thing where they're tracking the progression of basically how materials move through a production chain. The fact that they have a model for this is, is heartening. What that actually ends up being in the terms of gameplay is is nebulous to me like he's making a model right is this just a flow graph or what is this right you know will we- well i think it's probably to determine how many resource nodes are required i mean this sounds very much like they're working on the kinds of calculations that and jeff you can chime in to back me up here that people playing the x series of games would need because in all of those games you had to set up supply chains and like if you wanted a particular good it was made up of other materials those materials had to come from another set of factories which those factories themselves needed to be fed materials so it sounds like what they're probably doing is figuring out okay how many different types of processing facilities should we or do we need for the system we're setting up because if they create like a separate production chain for every single good, then the number of resource nodes they need to develop are exponentially large. Whereas if they figure out, okay, so we only need three different types of, say, ore processors. Like one group can process all the rare ores, one group can process all the uncommon ores, and one group can process all the common ores. That cuts down on the number of resource nodes you need rather than okay these people can only process like iron and these people can only process tungsten and so forth and so on you're absolutely correct that's kind of cool actually i hope they they do something like that i assume the trade slayer also would break down how many items are in this trade pipeline right if you're going to turn a lump of materials into a shield you know i assume that pete is working on what those intermediate potential items are that go into the shield potential. Oh yeah, definitely. Because you'd need to know like, okay, this many tons of ore provides this many tons of ingots, which can, you know... You need like a flux capacitor and a manifold thingamajob, you know, or whatever. And then those 10 items make a shield. shield. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, five of those items plus a, a muzzle make a laser or something like that, right? Right. It's interesting for those with a more uh, supply chain type bent. The Elite Dangerous newsletter marked its 150th issue this week, including details for a push for expansion in the new second populated bubble of space surrounding Jacques Station. Toward this goal of building a new hub of activity in this region, free from the conflicts between the powers and the major factions, Frontier has announced the Colonia Expansion Initiative. We here at Guard Frequency especially appreciate this acknowledgement of the work we do here. Come on, Colonia. I mean, they can play it off as Colony Colonia, but we all know where they really got the idea. Thank you, FDev. We appreciate you too. The Colonia Expansion Initiative. This new program allows player collectives to apply for a migration pass. 
These groups will be featured in upcoming community goals where commanders will have the option of choosing a new potential faction with whom to align in Colonia. The top 10 of these factions will be incorporated into the game with a surface port and independent faction of their own. Each subsequent month, we'll see three more factions added until further notice. All faction submissions will of course be vetted and approved by the Colonia Council, presumably meeting Frontier themselves. So, if you have a good-sized player group you think might attract enough commanders to your cause, now is the time to fill out your migration application and throw your hat in the ring. Rest assured that if Guard Frequency decides to partake in any tossing of headgear, you, our listeners, will be the first to know. Because we'll need you to sign on. So, I don't want to toot our own horn much more, but didn't we postulate a system like this a couple of episodes ago? Oh, absolutely. We did. And it's good to know that the Frontier dev team is listening to Guard Frequency because um, this is exactly what we're talking about. And I'd like to bring in our resident elite expert uh, in on this and have him. Henry's not here tonight, Jeff. You're stuck with me. That will do. Okay. All right. Good. So, yeah, uh, this is, uh, I think this is going to be another fun little piece of it. They've got, the faction piece of it is interesting, and we talked a long time ago, a long time ago, how there's not really a real clear guild system. I think they're trying to work that out with these in-game, but yet not in-game factions, where they're trying to basically create a process by which you can make a guild, but the developers still have a lot of control over what that guild can and can't do so you know you'll get text messages and uh, some flavor in the game and you'll have the ability to maybe compete for in-game perks and bonuses but they're heavily vetting how these guilds get set up right now so I think they're using this as an opportunity to sort of tweak that system out will like a leader player be able to control whether other players can join these factions no I don't think so I think I think basically what it's going to be is that you will basically just be a presence in game as on a text basis like if you go through and get your your system set up or whatever you'll have a quote base on one of the planets right one of the one of the landable planets or the airless moons that are out there you'll have a base there that you can kind of call your own but it's just going to be a base mm-hmm. you know it's going to be something that works like any other starport but it's going to be quote yours because it'll be named after your thing and i imagine once they get the faction system rolling if your faction you know controls the star base or something like that your bases will get some kind of bonus or something i imagine baby steps feeling out how they want their guild system to work. Right. But any, any schmo can just join the faction and get rep. I don't, yeah, I don't think they're going to do anything like that uh, right, up, right up front. But if you do missions for, the computer will generate missions in the game, right? I see. It'll be go collect 10 tons of ore or whatever. The character that you get the missions from probably will be identified by the faction creators, right? It'll be El Presidente Bob Smith. It'll be Second Lieutenant Susie Jones. They'll get character names from from the players, maybe even commander names. You know, Commander Kinshadow is the top boss, and, and Commander Pentad is the second guy, right? So that'll be cool, but it'll be flavor. Mm-hmm. The system itself will still be will still generate the missions and, and hand out the rewards. So I think that's how they're kind of approaching it so far. So it'll be interesting how they do it. It sounds like a nice sort of Easter egg type system where it gives the sense that the players are having an impact on the world without giving them like game breaking control over any major mechanics. Yeah, yeah. I, I think moving it away out in the middle of nowhere is good too, right? So you know, it's kind of I don't know if you want. to call like establishing almost a pvp zone kind of a thing 
you know, they might establish that a, a second bubble where if you are playing in open, you might see additional rewards or something like that. If you're in the bubble and in open, you'll get even further rewards or, you know, I, I, I can see them, I can foresee them doing something like that. And especially with the coming of uh, eventually, hopefully, multi-crew, I imagine they're going to have to kind of segregate the areas where that might be allowed or, you know, where the bonuses will come into play just so that a group of four people on a single ship can't micromanage single pilots to death. I I imagine this is also a prelude to that, too. Well, great. Thank you for your expert opinion. You're so welcome. But now it's time for news we didn't use. Starsys subscribers will have received their subscriber player for November by the time this episode airs. Alternative weapon colors are now available in the Frontier Store for use in Elite. These will change the color of most of your weapons on a given ship when activated on that ship, either via energy color or tracer rounds. Corporate War has gone to the proving grounds for Descent Underground. This new game mode finally allows mining in the game. This ore can be used to manufacture items such as turrets, weapons, and equipment that is tailored to ship classes. So they showed a a little bit of gameplay on Corporate War, but they didn't give much detail into how the micromanaging works. So the mining is basically you have a mining, all of the drones have mining lasers, I believe. Um, You run up to a rock, which looks obviously a place you can mine. Uh, You blast the rock for a while. It explodes into a bunch of fragments. And then you run into the fragments just like you would run into any kind of upgrade in the game that you would normally see in the, uh, the more arcadey maps. And then that gives you a uh, account and you have, you can only hold so much or you run back to your team's base and you run through a, a field and it drops the ore off. And a lot of it's placeholder graphics now. The, the rocks look like crap, but they, they made a point in, in their Switch stream saying this will be, this will all look a lot better in the end game. Um, and like the field you get it in is just a bunch of lasers. But as you drop off ore, you get an uh, increasing ore counter or something like that on your base. And they didn't, I didn't quite see how they were doing it, but somehow they were manufacturing things given with the ore they dropped off. And so if you get enough ore, you can start dropping turrets. And if you, dro- if you get enough ore, like your uh, Goliath can uh, then build his specialized shield. Like you, you don't start with your specialized equipment. You have to buy, you have to buy it as the game goes on, things like that. Again, a lot of that was kind of fuzzy because they were just kind of playing with it while while they were on there. But um, I think we'll see more of this as it's fleshed out and people are playing it in the proving grounds. All right, so debate time. Who wants in? I think Tony should do it. I was going to say you're, it, that is an option if we want to go down that road. I'm just a sound guy. Oh, come on. You just went through a political election. You can. You still got some debate left in you. That would be the strongest argument I would give for why I should still sit this one out. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll play. If someone wants to play, I'll play. Ken Shadow versus Tony? Those two, that means we 100% need the 30-second timer. Cataclysms, upheavals, revolutions. Regardless of what title is given to them in-game, they are the events that permanently reshape the static universe of an MMO. The easiest example to point to for this is World of Warcraft. 
Through the course of several expansions, the in-game world of Azeroth has been modified to the extent that players who played in the first release, and then left before the first expansion, wouldn't recognize the world that now exists. Entire areas have either been eliminated or redone to represent different biomes, ecosystems, and factions. Nothing similar has happened to Elite Dangerous as of yet, but speculation about the nature and intent of the Thargoid aliens has some wondering if their arrival might represent a fundamental shift in the game's static elements. Will popular hubs of travel become war zones? Will some number of stations be destroyed? Will the factions remain as they are? Similar speculation exists in the Star Citizen community around the subject of the Vanduul sacking Earth. The event has been touted as a near certainty by CIG, and theories are rampant. Some think the planet won't be habitable or have any landing sites on it afterward, and any companies headquartered there will be eliminated or severely crippled. Others wonder if the sack will cause the in-game capital of the UEE to move to Terra. Some players welcome these changes as ways to increase content and shake up the player base. They argue that the completely changed reality in the game introduces entirely new ways of playing and allows for players to explore again after being familiar with the area for too long. Others resent the changes and see them as disregarding the loyal players in the name of attracting more customers. Add-ons and new areas could achieve the same results, they argue, and they wouldn't erase the existing world that they've invested their time and money in. Gentlemen, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to debate world-breaking cataclysms in games. Kin Shadow's house was purchased as is, where is, and simply puts an addition on if he needs more space, while Tony tends to begin redecorating by hiring a bulldozer. So, Kin Shadow, why are cataclysms that alter the original game world a deal-breaker for you? Thanks, Astron. Well, first off, cataclysms and any kind of world-changing event make it hard for new players to come on board. They immediately add in a whole other layer of lore that new players have to worry about. Another thing is that play any players that are casual or take a break from the game become totally disenfranchised. And, be and they add, and cataclysms add a barrier to entry that wouldn't normally be there for the casual player to come back to the game. Now, I think that uh, world-breaking cataclysms actually permit new players to come in because it sort of levels the playing field. Everyone else has been there forever. They've got their fortress or they've got their tricked-out spaceship. They've got their, their massive amounts of wealth. And then all of a sudden, something bad happens and allows new people to come in and exploit those weaknesses that those old players have. I think it's actually encouraging uh, and, and well-timed to expansions to bring in the new players. Kinchetto, is that a valid point? No, I don't think it is, Ostron. No, these cataclysms usually don't upset old players or reset their reset their value. They in, instead they just create non-cohesive elements in the narrative for people who weren't there for the cataclysm. If you were there, if you saw the story, if you participated taking on the boss, then it's great for you. If you weren't there, nothing makes sense. You feel left out, and you're an outsider. As far as the narrative goes, I think that that may have uh, an excellent point. But for the most part, people come in to play games to play games. And if you are trying to attract new players in with your game mechanics, the narrative is, is, is good and fun. But what you want to do is attract a new customer base that enjoys executing the game mechanics with old players and new players alike. Leveling the playing field or introducing new and, and inconsistent elements can let new people feel like they've got just as much of a chance as the old people. 
Thank you both for a lively debate. And now for some additional commentary, we'll turn to someone who's been alive for every major cataclysm recorded in history. So, Jeff, what's your take on the subject? Well, uh, they both have valid points, but I tend to lead more against cataclysms. And I, and I, I won't use um, current era or previous era real life history to, that was experienced. But uh, let's take the one that you presented in, the, in your brief in the beginning. I played WoW since beta and have gone through all the major expansions, including the cataclysm. That, And I, I tell you, I was kind of upset by it at first. You know, my 50 or so characters I've taken through the uh, original vanilla and seeing these landscapes devastated and changed. And, and at first it was like, how dare they do this to my world? But after a while, it was like, you know, this is cool. This gives me all new stuff to explore, the changes in the missions and the, and the storyline. And to go through it again was, was a real joy. Uh, I got to revisit some areas I hadn't seen in, in some time. So I think it's a two-edged sword. If you do it right, it's an advancement, it's an enhancement, and I think that both old and new players will enjoy it. If it's done wrong, nobody is going to be happy. So I've got an anecdote of what I felt was one that was done wrong, and I think most people would probably agree, and that's Ultima Online. I'm sure you, Jeff, lifted the same thing with the Feluca yeah, debacle. Well, I didn't want to bring that up. <laughs> but that's an experience there that, that I saw new players coming to. And if you were an old player and you'd played Ultima when it came out, you put it down for a couple of months, you picked it back up, and they'd done the Feluca Trammel split. And for those who don't know, Feluca was the... They basically had one world that was fairly PvP-friendly. Some people, EverQuest came out, people got a taste of what it was to have a PvE-friendly game, and they decided, a lot of people started going to EverQuest, and so Origin decided, okay, well, we'll try and cater to these people by making a mirror copy of, of the world in every single shard, in where one world is just like the old rule set, which is fairly PvP-friendly, and the new rule set will be very PvE-friendly, like you, it, it's very hard to attack a player and things like that. They called them Feluca and Trammel. Trammel was the PvE world, and it looked it looked like the old world. All of the the vegetation, everything looked fine. The old world is now called Feluca, and that is PvP friendly. And they defoliated all the trees, and they added like skulls and crossbones everywhere to make it very clear you're in a dangerous area. The problem is is that if you were an old player and you came back to the game after this cataclysm of of sorts, you were stuck in Feluca. And if you didn't pay attention to the game and what was going on, you would just start running out there and start seeing body parts everywhere and no foliage on the trees. And literally the only people in Feluca were murderers. And so all you were, all you would do is die. And I saw a fair number of people get really frustrated and saying, what the hell is happening, right? Was that they had to find a portal to get over to Trammel and it wasn't necessarily user-friendly at all. That was a bad transition. I guess another one that, that I have that was a bad transition was not necessarily horrible, but I was I came back to ED recently, and I haven't played ED in, you know, since probably beta or something like that, right? Um, or at least the very beginning of it. And I hadn't been participating in factions or anything, and so I started out on a uh, a base and went to go buy some cargo, and the base was in lockdown because of faction control or some other weird thing. 
And it took me 10, 15 minutes to figure out why can't I do anything on this base, right? You know, it wasn't a horrible, the end of the world, but it was extremely confusing for a couple of minutes saying, I remember I used to be able to buy goods and things like that, right? So, yeah, no, I mean, it's a good point. Yeah, it's an excellent point that they, they introduce a new game mechanic or and, and it's, it's a game mechanic and a piece of lore that as you're returning, it, you're not prepared to confront. And that is a problem. But the alternative is that you don't let any, you don't change anything, and then your old players get bored and, and, and it gets stale. Sure. It will be interesting to see how some of these companies handle these things going forward. So if a player is on Terra and then Terra is sacked, you know, what, what happens with all these edge cases? Do all those people just get destroyed and you, you wake up in a hospital and have to reclaim your ship for your insurance and things like that? Uh, or they just simply move you with things like that. So that, those will be the edge cases in, say, Star Citizen as to whether these uh, game-changing cataclysms actually have a good player experience or not. And we can you know, hope for the best. So now you know our thoughts on it, we want to hear yours. This week's community question, are world-altering apocalyptic events in a game a good way to keep the game fresh and exciting? Or do they needlessly alienate the loyal players when add-on zones and content are just as effective? Send an email to squawk at guardfrequency.com or post over on our show thread at guardfrequency.com. Now that we're all caught up with the latest news, let's tune into the feedback loop and let you join in on the conversation. Okay, buddy, what's on your mind? We're all friendly! Some say he was a rejected engineer's modification, and that no one has scanned his wake and lived to tell the tale. But all we know is he's called the Shiv, and he'll put together this week's feedback. Community question. Are developer-created Easter eggs referencing other IPs, tributes to the historical legacies, and extra bonuses for fans? Or are they just immersion-breaking laziness to make up for the mediocre world-building? Colby Jorgensen writes in and says, depends on the subtlety. It can easily be both. Brendan Tolivar says... I can't see how it would be laziness. If I were lazy, I just wouldn't do anything. Lots of Easter eggs seem expertly placed for the wow factor. Ken from Chicago suggested MMO references to other IPs are required for immersion because hashtag life imitates art. Art inspires art and more. Michael Nolan writes in and says, tributes and bonuses for the win. Renegade Shank says, they can be all of them depending on how they are done. Sean Newboy as is traditional, said, Love the show. I love Easter eggs as long as they are not too obvious or shoved in your face. Code Dragon 5 says, I like Easter eggs. They do have to be done well, and some of the best ones have to be found off the beaten path. I also think they don't necessarily break immersion and are quite realistic when the game is about the future. Whenever we do make our actual voyages into the Deep Black, people are going to name stations and planets like Terra and Tatooine and Nimrod after they use Spacey McSpaceface. <laughs> Amontillado writes in and says, Easter eggs done well, and by that I mean as a manner as they could seamlessly exist in the fictional world without being a reference to something else, are great. If your immersion is broken by seeing AMD, in this case standing for accelerated mass design, on the side of a spaceship, perhaps your immersion is lazy, not the developers. That's right, Amontillado. Blame the yeah. players, I not think the game. Code Dragon said it best. I mean, 
if you think that ED is a future of our current time in the universe, right? It's supposed to be our future. Then everything that's in there as far as an Easter egg is appropriate, right? Yeah, I suppose to a certain extent. My, my counter argument in that case would be having a station named George Lucas Station makes sense. Having that station be the one place where you can buy Azure Milk specifically sort of stretches okay. yeah, credulity I, I, for I can get bit. that. But but all in all, you know, it's hard hard pressed to, you know, say what's right and wrong in this in this case. It really is. Yeah. It, it's it's just a matter of taste. <laughs> and I think a lot of my arguments that I had for in the the debate were about my particular taste in that in, in that thing, and I, I I think it's lazy 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 writing that borrows on other people's uh, nostalgia, but it can be done better. Or, I mean, it can be done in well, or it can be done very shoddily. Well, I think so. it's also a matter of how you approach playing that particular game. When I'm playing like Elite Dangerous or Starsis, and I'm approaching it like this, I'm playing our our current future. When I play a game like WoW, it's like I'm approaching it like, oh, I'm I'm an orc from Azeroth. So I don't expect to see little Easter eggs from uh, Star Wars in, in WoW, for example. So I, I guess it depends on the player's approach to how they're playing that game. Which, which would be more Amontillado's point. Tony, any desire to weigh in on the topic? An Easter egg is supposed to be something that you come across, right? You know they're out there, but you don't know where. And if you're actually on an Easter egg hunt, you look in the places where people would conceal Easter eggs. So it's a two-way street. You can't, you can't really complain about Easter eggs being winks and nods when you're out looking for Easter eggs. Because if you just stumble across them, you can, you can, you're allowed a, an eye roll, I suppose. But if you're out looking for Easter eggs, don't complain when they're corny or a little bit, you know, two on the nose uh, and, you know, the blue milk plus the George Lucas. Okay, I, we get it. All right. But that's the whole point of the Easter eggs. They're, you hide them in places where they would expect to be hidden. And if you're looking for them, that's where they're going to be. And our new Patreon this week is Maurice Van Cree. Winner of the new patch, see above. Bonus points for making me try and pronounce your name. <laughs> And this week's community question, are world-altering apocalyptic events in-game a good way to keep the game fresh and exciting? Or do they needlessly alienate the loyal players when add-on zones and content are just as effective? Let us know your thoughts. Send an email to squawk at guardfrequency.com or post over on our show thread at guardfrequency.com. So, how was the show? Keep the core and keep adding stuff on, or do we need an apocalypse to remake it fresh? Either way, let us know. Here's how you can get in touch with us. Why not leave us a comment on this show's post over at GuardFrequency.com? Or hit us up on Twitter at GuardFreak and leave a comment and like us on Facebook.com forward slash GuardFreak. If you're old school like us, shoot us an email to squawk at GuardFrequency.com. You can also use the contact form on our website, and all the details for all the ways you can get in touch with us can be found in the show notes. Your feedback is an important part of what we do, so take a minute and tell us what's on your mind. And that brings us to the end of episode 145 of Guard Frequency. We'll be back with episode 146 on November 22nd, so be sure to keep an eye out for our shows on our website, GuardFrequency.com. But that's not all. You can also subscribe to our shows at feeds.guardfrequency.com or by searching for us on iTunes. And if you're not doing anything Friday nights, 
then you can always join us live over at guardfrequency.com forward slash live. We start recording around 10 p.m. Central. That's Saturdays at 5 a.m. in Gay Paris. Do you like what we do? Want to help us make the best damn space sim podcast ever? Drop us an email at squawk at guardfrequency.com. And you can also support the show by visiting our website, clicking on the Patreon logo, and becoming a regular subscriber. For just a buck twenty-five, you'll get access to the raw recordings of our live shows, as well as being entered into our weekly draw to win some Guard Frequency goodies. We want to thank all of our Patreons who support us with their subscriptions week on week, and hope that you'll consider making a regular contribution, because the more support we get, the better show we can make. Are you looking for a friendly wingman or two? We're active in most space sims and would love to have you join us. Check out our website and look under the call sign section for details of how you can fly with us. And don't forget about our sister production, Priority One. They cover all things Star Trek from the TV series to the MMO, the novels, the movies, and everything in between. Be sure to check them out at PriorityOnePodcast.com. We'd like to thank the entire team at Guard Frequency and the Priority One Network. Thanks to our community manager, Justin Chivalry Bean Lowmaster, our artists, Ben Sanders and Simon Charlton Edwards, our staff writer, Jace Pentad, our stand-in booth man, Tony Hunter, and of course, our audio engineer, Mikey. And a special shout out to Ronald Jenkins for his permission to use his music in our show. Visit RonaldJenkins.com for more of his work. But above all, we especially want to thank you folks for tuning in. If no one's listening out there, the deep black gets pretty lonely. Colon, 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 colon. And intro in three, two. Now is the summer. No. <laughs> We're not sailing. Say, We're not sailing. Say, <laughs> We're not sailing there with is, aliens. We are aliens. No boats, no water. I know. I know. Uh, this is going to be a great show. Armando F. Bora and Eric. Armando. Oh, Tony, it's so good to have you back. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> and are therefore in agreement with this hypop with this hypopness. Hypothesis. I know what it says. I'm hypotenuse. trying to hypotenuse. <laughs> I just couldn't think of anything funny to say. I know. That's why I said aware, not not intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> they also gave us some more details. Oh, the so the Star Citizen subflare this month is a mushroom. Yeah, um, they uh, they had some particular name for it. I don't recall. Alien mushroom. Oh, great! It's going to spore, and we're going to all turn into aliens. Oh, I just love it. Whoa. Either that or it's going to spore and we're all going to be very mellow. Well, you've got to have an opinion on it in one way or another. I have an opinion about it. I know that. Yeah. That's why I asked. <laughs> <laughs> hold, on, yeah. hold on. Hold on. Is yeah. gay Paris in a different time zone than normal Paris? <laughs> it's gay Paris. Gay Paris. <laughs>
gay parody. That's that's a did that you guys hire wholesale gum? <laughs> that has to be approved through HR. Okay. I, <laughs> gay, who is this gay parody guy? And when did he join the show? You have a new accent, Jeff. You need to read this in that new accent. <laughs> uh, let's see if I can do. Uh, but that's not all. You can also subscribe to our shows. <laughs> no, please, no, no, no. Boy, if you thought Lana was going to give us crap for our bad English accents, just wait till he hears your terrible French ones. Remember that whole speech I gave last week about people taking jokes too far?